Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy. We dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. I'm Molly Wood. This week, okay, buckle up, friends. Last week, we did AI, and this week, we're going to talk about quantum computing. What? I know, it's a wild card. But here's the thing. In the climate solutions conversation, you will often hear people talk about the need for game-changing innovation. And you know me, I'm a fan of needing everything. We have a lot of the tools already to make big policy and business and energy use changes that would go a very long way towards slowing global warming and avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. We should be doing all of those things. And yes, please vote accordingly. But also, in a world where we are building a better future, where countries can industrialize without the damage that the first versions have created, where we can expand our safety and health and comfort and protect and restore nature, we should still be striving to do things better. And so today we're going to get super cool nerdy about some of the breakthroughs that could be enabled by this one big breakthrough, which is quantum computing, a world where calculations that once took years or were completely impossible can now be solved in a matter of hours or even minutes. And that could lead to a revolution in new materials like more efficient solar panels or advanced batteries or carbon neutral fertilizer, really a bunch of things we can't even come close to thinking of. Quantum computing is one of those things that's been on the horizon for a very long time now, but I recently got introduced to a company called SciQuantum, which is working to commercialize quantum computing as fast as possible, if possible, and put it to work. So my name is Pete Chappell. I'm a co-founder of SciQuantum. Uh, we're a quantum computing company based in California. And I, you know, I've, I've worked on quantum computing for about 15 years myself, initially in the academic system, and then uh, moved to Silicon Valley about seven years ago to start the company. And the company's really just trying to do one thing, which is to build the kind of the, the real, the genuine error-corrected quantum computer that people have dreamed about uh, for decades. And it's a great, great privilege to have been able to spend my entire working life trying to bring this technology to, to reality. Let's start at sort of the, the top and give people just an overview of what we mean when we say quantum computing and why everybody has working for been working for so many decades to accomplish this technology and bring it to market. Yeah, so I think I think most people will have at least come across the term quantum computing or seen it mm -hmm. uh, in the in the media or something like that. It's an idea that's decades old. Today there are many many teams spending billions of dollars trying to bring this technology to life. Uh, so both inside big corporations, Google, Microsoft, Intel, IBM, Amazon, all have big quantum computing programs, probably hundreds of people each, and have been doing so for, for a long time. And then also the national labs, research groups, universities, and a number of well-funded startups. Mm -hmm. I also like to reflect on a slightly sinister idea, which is that 
tens of thousands of years of human life have already been given to this project. Hmm. In that, you know, there are there are thousands and thousands of people around the world, PhD students, postdocs, researchers, technical people, non-technical people, there are thousands of them who've been working for, you know, in some cases decades. Uh, and, you know, for example, my CEO, he spent 25 years of his life trying to build a quantum computer. Mm-hmm. And so it's this giant human endeavor, really. Um, and it's also remarkable in that today nobody has a useful quantum computer. Right. So it's still a dream that people are trying to trying to bring to life. It's very cool and kind of sci-fi when you put it that way, by the way. Just th- think yeah. of it as like a generation's ship or something, you know, like you're going to send it out into the cosmos and you might not be alive when it gets where it's going. Yeah, it's absolutely a sort of generational human project. I think it's very, very rare uh, that humans come up with something like this, where once the idea is planted, they have to have it. Yeah. I sometimes visualize like a black hole, you know, once you get over the event horizon of quantum computing, once that idea is rooted, like the rest of your life is just laid out in front of you. You got to go and build this thing. So, so why? Like, tell us, tell us the why of the, the, the potential. Yeah. I interrupted you because I couldn't stop geeking out about, you know, multi-generational spaceships, but that, that was, yeah, that's yeah. on me. No, that's it. That's it. So like, so like what that, so then yes. So it is really striking billions of dollars, thousands of years of human life, thousands of the best technical people. And the, you know, these are like the stellar elite technical people of our generation. Uh, frequently working on quantum computing. Why is the is the question? And so let me just briefly try to give a description of what quantum computing is in, in sort of boring terms. Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk about why we think that's so exciting in fairly abstract terms and why, you know, people are people are spending their life on this. So uh, there is a guy called Rolf Landauer, who's one of the uh, kind of grandfathers of information theory. And he has a beautiful expression, um, which I think is a great starting point for this, which is, he says, information is physical. Okay. So often we think of information as kind of an abstract thing that lives um, in the ether or in our brains or something like that. But what he's saying when he says information is physical is that really information only exists when it's encoded in some stuff. And that stuff might be little electrical patterns in your brain. It might be like bits of ink on a piece of paper. It might be rocks arranged on a beach. Whatever it is, you instantiate that information in a physical object. Mm-hmm. It's quite it's, it's quite an unusual way of thinking about things, actually. We mm-hmm. usually think of information as actually something more sort of abstract. But no, he's saying it, it only exists when it's real. And the implication of this is that the things that you can do with information are dictated by the physics of the stuff that you use to encode that information. So if I make, you know, some, if I encode some information using rocks on the beach, I can move that information around. I can do some kind of rudimentary computation by moving rocks around. And I'm limited by like how fast I can run backwards and forwards on the sand and, you know, whether the waves come and uh, sweep them over my rocks and so on. You can imagine all sorts of fun different ways to do this, as well as like the, the mundane ways that we represent information today, writing on paper, and then more, more often, you know, either magnetic fields in a hard disk or electric fields in our, in our computers and so on. The point is that 
all of that physics that we use today to manipulate information. As far as we understand everything that's going on in our brain, everything that's going on in our computers, everything that's going on when we speak or um, compute by hand, all of that is the classical physics of 100 plus years ago. So it's basically Newton and Maxwell. So Newton's equations of balls bouncing around and things rolling down slopes, and Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism, light, radio waves, things like that. Mm-hmm. Everything that we compute is constrained by that set of physical laws. What's interesting about quantum computing is that, you know, 100 years ago, a number of physicists started to discover things that violated those established laws of physics. And this is what ultimately became the theory of quantum mechanics, a theory that has been sort of marveled at and puzzled over for 100 plus years and is still sort of troubling to most physicists. And, you know, we won't get into the interesting aspects of quantum mechanics itself, um, but the piece that's relevant for quantum computing is that it's got new rules. So Newton and Maxwell, they tell you there are some rules, you know, things don't move unless you push on them and all this kind of stuff. They don't accelerate unless you push on all this kind of stuff. Things can't necessarily exist in two places at once. Yeah, exactly. And then quantum mechanics comes along and introduces some new rules. Oh, things actually can be in superposition. Oh, things can be entangled, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Some like piece of mathematics that's very hard to describe fits on a postcard very simple piece of mathematics, Um, hard to describe in natural language, but definitely a new rule. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it introduces new things that you can do with information. So if you can encode your information in quantum mechanical systems, then you can do new operations. And the way I think about this is it's like we're playing a game of chess. There's some established rules. We can move the pieces around on the board. And suddenly these quantum mechanics guys show up and they introduce new rules into the game of chess. Right. They say, hey, guess what? I can actually move the queen this way. And you say, that's not fair. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, they win the game and it's deeply, uh, deeply asymmetric game of chess. That's what's going on with quantum computing is mm-hmm. we have new physics, we have new rules. And so now we can play new strategies when we design algorithms and when we try to do computation. And so this, this is a categorical difference. It's not an incremental, you know, efficiency-saving type of change. It's really about putting humanity into a completely new regime in terms of the way in which we can compute. And that is a, that is a profoundly exciting idea. Now, everything that I've just said so far is very abstract. What does this mean for people's lives? What does this mean for industry? We'll get there. Um, but let me just pause there and see if that's making sense as a sort of uh, articulation of, of, of quantum computing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to pick up on the chess metaphor, it's it's worth saying that it's not like suddenly the king could go wherever he wanted instead of one square at a time. It's more like the king or the queen could just vanish from the board and then appear somewhere else and yeah, maybe even right. show up simultaneously on someone else's chessboard and win the game over there. At the, like it's a that's right. <laughs> it's a step change in what we're thinking it's a step about change. Yeah. what is possible. That's right. Yep. That's right. 
it's not a free-for-all. It's not that you can suddenly solve everything and that you can suddenly not do magic. whatever you want. There will be some rules. Exactly. And you can imagine it in a game of chess, it only takes a few new rules before you're in deep trouble, right? Like if your competitor right. is playing with a couple of extra different rules, like you're in deep, deep trouble. And and, and so, yeah, that's kind of the, the mechanism. It's not that they mm-hmm. have omnipotence and no constraints. Uh, they've just got some new new pieces in their in their arsenal right okay and so then why is it so hard how come it's been so many human years yeah let me just brief briefly touch on on sort of because that's all very abstract right that's by the way why i have spent my life working on it it's just this very broad notion of a new regime of computation to to bring that down down to to Earth, what that then means is that we know of quantum algorithms for things like designing materials, designing drugs, solving optimization problems, breaking cryptographic codes, various fairly kind of scientific or technically involved, um, but clearly applicable problems. And, And the general theme of those problems uh, is is the following? If you think about like our our biggest companies, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, sometimes to me they look like uh, a bunch of guys in suits shaking hands with each other uh, as a mm. as a former academic. But if you think about it, like car company, materials company, energy company, pharmaceutical company, semiconductor company, they all sit on a foundation of chemistry, physics, and math. Whether it's the drug that they're selling, whether you know the molecule that they're selling, whether it's the fuel molecule that they're um, selling, whether it's some reaction chemistry or some photovoltaic cell or battery chemistry for your electric vehicle, they're all sitting on a foundation of chemistry, physics, and math. And in many cases, they've been able to take it easy for the last uh, few decades using the same stuff, whether that's petrochemicals that burn or whether that's the particular drug that they've been selling whatever suddenly in the last 5 10 20 years they've had to take seriously the prospect of radically reinventing the foundational chemistry physics materials supply chains math computation that that their that their industries are built upon and this is where quantum computing is hoped to have you know real commercial impact mm-hmm. is in allowing much better innovation uh, at these kind of root, at the root of these these, these giant industries. Um, but as you say, nobody has a quantum computer today. Why is it why is it so hard? Um, it would be we believe incredibly valuable. So you have to, and it goes back to Ralph Landau. Information is physical. If you want to play these new rules, you have to find a way to reliably encode information in quantum mechanical systems. Um, if your system is behaving like a regular old boring classical system, then you don't get to play with these new rules. And quantum mechanical systems are generally speaking exotic. That's why we don't see superposition and entanglement every day in our everyday lives. So that means single atoms, single electrons, single photons, objects that are extremely small or incredibly cold, generally something that you would find in a physics lab. And so there are a very wide variety of ways of doing this. 
Um, but they all basically start out looking like physics experiments. So someone will trap a single atom in ultra-high vacuum, or they'll find a way to isolate a single photon, which is what we do. Um, and then they'll play around to encode information into these, these systems. And this has been a very successful program, you know, incredibly well-funded academic research for decades. And people have been very successful in making quantum bits, qubits, in all of these different platforms. And it took a long time and there were, you know, all sorts of roadblocks and people thought things might be impossible and so on. But today everyone can make really nice qubits um, in all of these platforms. Why don't we have a quantum computer yet? Well, you need about a million qubits mm -hmm. uh, to actually run these commercially valuable applications. Uh, Google today has 72 um, and so that gives you hopefully a feeling for kind of the gap that we have to cross. And if you think about your laptop, your laptop has a billion transistors in it at least. Um, and that's a mass-produced article. The semiconductor industry spent a trillion dollars over the last 50 years to make that possible. It's a miracle that we can just stamp out billions of transistors in our computers. Today, in most cases, we really don't have something like that for quantum computing. Uh, it, and so a lot of people are stuck in a regime of, you know, trying to scale up a science experiment, which is mm -hmm. technically very, very challenging. They run into issues with noise, with reliability, with fabrication, with packaging, cooling. Most of these systems you might be familiar are cooled to incredibly low temperatures, colder than deep space. And so, yeah, it's one of the hardest engineering challenges on the planet. Right. I would say the hardest to build a, a useful quantum computer. Okay. So now, so then the challenge becomes scale and repeatability, which is what brings us to what you're doing that's different. Yeah, and it's also worth saying, like, um, I think there's a very interesting sort of sociological perspective on, on quantum computing. Um, all of these quantum computing companies come out of university research groups. Psyquantum is no different. A bunch of professors and postdocs and PhDs you know, happily publishing papers, doing cool experiments, showing, you know, super breakthroughs and working with the university comms department and so on and so on. And you're very familiar with this machinery. Right. So you're better than Professor blah, 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 but you haven't exactly changed society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and so there's there's just a giant culture shock in in getting out of that and changing your priorities. Like your priority is no longer to do something novel. Uh, your priority is no longer to marvel at how fascinating your technology is. Your priority mm -hmm. is to go and build a, a billion devices that all work properly. And quantum mechanics especially is, or quantum computing is especially bad because the physics is so fascinating, right? Like, and you, you know, still today, there is a pop science journalist somewhere writing an article where they try to explain superposition or entanglement to the layperson. Oh, I read one last night about how you about read our one consciousness. Last night? Yeah, the quantum consciousness thing, and it's a wave that touches yeah. the universe. And let me explain why they exist in this wet blob. And I was like, yeah, this is not helping. And did you walk away feeling satisfied and like enlightened and it clicked? You get it. Like finally, entanglement is just perfectly visualized in your mind? I mean, and I've read more than most, right? I've seen the no. Bob and the Sue thing and the like the, and the Tesseract yeah. line and the, all of it and none of it. Certainly, 
in the climate tech space where I'm very familiar with what you're talking about, which we often call the valley of death. Like how do you get from mm-hmm. the science project um, and impressing everybody at the science fair to yep. commercialization? And it sounds like you have a bit of a novel approach at Psyquantum. And I want to ask about that approach, but first I want to know what got you there. What pulled you out of academics into thinking like, let's make this, let's scale it. Yeah. So we, I was, I mean, so for me personally, I've been just very lucky to randomly walk into the right rooms and uh, whatever. And obviously I'm extremely privileged uh, also, but you know, I've been, was never there was never a plan it was the black hole of quantum computing right like we spent um 10 or so years in the university system proving out the basic science of the the physical implementation that we use which is based on single photons so particles of light that are inside a silicon chip that's how we build our qubits i could tell you forever about how great they are and how much better they are than the other guys' qubits. You'll probably have to tell us like a little bit. I'll save you. you. I'll I'll save you. I'll save you the full story. Okay, you get to be the the best guy at the science fair today. If you talk to the... uh, The thing thing about that is though, if you talk to... Quantum computing is poisoned by this, which is that Mm. if you talk to the next... I'll I'll give you the spiel, right? Like I'll show you my lovely PowerPoint about why my qubit is so good and lovely. And you'll walk away and you say, wow, Pete's qubit sounds amazing. And then you'll go to like Alice at the next company and she'll produce her PowerPoint. And you'll walk away and say, Pete's an idiot. Why is he doing it that way? <laughs> Alice's qubit is just like, it's got this networking thing and it's got this like, it, they, 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 whatever. You can, all, you can always do this, right? Like of you course. can always But none produce. of it will matter until somebody's qubit gets to Best Buy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and so this is like, you know, I can, we can differentiate ourselves on the technology, but you point, uh, rightly to a different type of differentiation, which is really the sort of philosophy and the approach of the company, which is to tackle that valley of death. And I, I think I really appreciate the way you're framing it. Like, just tackle that valley. The only way to get across that valley of death as a startup is really fast, <laughs> like really <laughs> fast, because you just cannot burn money for that long. Um, without running into trouble. And, and and so, yeah, our approach has been to try as far as possible to solve the hard problems up front, tackle the scary scaling challenges head on, and as much as possible use leverage to overcome these scaling problems. And what I mean by that is we try to build our chips and do our packaging and do our assembly and do our cryogenics do all of that using existing technology. And that's not always possible. Sometimes we have to make quite extreme modifications, but we're always kind of trying to go to a big established semiconductor foundry, for instance, to make our chips. We could actually do things faster and cheaper in our own fab or in a university clean room, but we go through the pain and spend the money to go to a giant commercial uh, chip foundry to make our chips because that comes to some extent with a promise that when we ask for a million devices or a thousand wafers, that's immediately, you know, a reasonable expectation of that, that facility they've Mm -hmm. invested in cleanliness, they've invested in reproducibility and uh, none of it's easy, but we do think that that leverage is key 
to having a fast path to a, to a big system of, of millions of qubits. You know, the flip side of that is that we don't build small quantum computers at PsyQuantum. So we used to do that in our academic days, but we haven't spent any of our investors' money to build, you know, a 100 qubit quantum computer and stick it on the internet or something. And that makes it a marathon, like a real marathon. It would be very satisfying to have a small system that we could play around with and show to people and so on. But we just don't really think that that's a good use of, of resources uh, relative to actually like tackling the giant manufacturing, cooling, connectivity, control electronics problems that without, without solving those, we just will never have a quantum computer. So PsyQuantum's goal is to indeed build the entire quantum computer, soup to nuts to qubits. And the big breakthrough is this ability to be manufacturing chips for these systems inside existing commercial chip foundries. So that even though they have to get a whole lot of things working in order to actually get quantum computers built, they at least don't have to invent an entirely new mode of manufacturing. I geeked out with Pete about this for a lot longer, if you can believe it. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how all of this fits in with solving climate change. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. We're talking with Pete Shadbolt, co-founder of PsyQuantum, about first, yes, this kind of fascinating technology challenge, and thank you for hanging with me on that for a while. And now we're going to get a little more specific about quantum and climate. So there is, in fact, a reason you're on this show. I think one of the things that people, when we talk about quantum computing, people, it, much like the AI conversation, I think, you know, everybody goes like, it'll just change everything, materials discovery and yeah. drug discovery and this and that and basic chemistry and like 40 years of basic science will be compressed into these short time frames. Mm -hmm. And then they always go, and also it'll be great for climate change. And yeah. then I always go, awesome, how? So yeah. um, <laughs> this is one of those conversations where certainly material is discovery, like, please explain kind of there's a universe of things that could happen as a result of this, but try to bring it down to like, what does it mean for this particular crisis? Yeah. So um, obviously we are in a deep crisis and I think, you know, I'm somebody who cares deeply about the situation that we're in and I've sort of tried to educate myself over the years I don't know about you, I still, I still find it very difficult to pass out the reality as far as, you know, are we just going to build a bunch of cheap solar cells and, and wind turbines and, you know, do some degrowth and, I don't know, like change our political leadership and mitigate the worst excesses of capitalism and save ourselves? Or Done. Yeah. <laughs> or do we need to like take control of the weather and build fusion power plants and like 
figure out how to build a giant array of solar panels in space. And, you know, this is an endless debate. Like, Mm -hmm. is this a, can we, I mean, it's just endlessly difficult to figure out like really where the, the, the risk level is and how extreme of an intervention we need. But there's a lot of people who I trust and who, whose you know, opinion I take very seriously, who will say that there is no question that we need beyond state-of-the-art technology uh, to have any hope of putting humanity on a sensible future trajectory. And again, I still harbor some sympathies for like back to the land, subsistence farming and whatever else. But, you know, when I try to be serious, uh, I take those people very seriously. Like the, the, the climate technologies that we currently have are not good enough. Uh, and it's very hard to see a way to sustain good quality of life without something new. And so that is really why where you know quantum computing gets attached to to climate is that there are a ton of people in the space of quantum computing who I think genuinely care and who are afraid of the future. By the way, there are also opportunist people who just want to spin a nice story and raise some money, right. and sometimes what? those are both. I am the- shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and mm. and sometimes those are the same person. By the way, um, absolutely. But uh, again, there is a there is a clear there's clearly a ton of people. Like when we bring this up internally in, inside the company, the number of engineers who get excited about the prospect of like, no matter how speculative, deploying a quantum computer to try to solve these problems, they really really get excited about doing that work, and it's super motivational. Um, as opposed to perhaps you know might be nice to go and solve some financial problems and make somebody loads of money on Wall Street. But, you know, you can understand why people want to want to spend their I lives. I guess if I had to choose between cryptography and, you know, solving climate, I would probably, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like the idea that, though, that, I mean, as much as you've described quantum itself as an animating principle that takes over your whole life, I like the idea that there's still some bandwidth, no pun intended, left internally to get, you know, excited about solving climate change. Hundred percent. Yeah, no, it's 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 extremely motivating to people, and so the list of, of of and and so, you know, there's a list that's now quite tired of examples that people roll out. So, and the general theme is to accelerate the design of new molecules, new materials, new photovoltaic cells. So, specifically, things like catalysts for carbon sequestration. You can imagine a wonderful new catalyst. By the way, do you know the example of like uh, nitrogen fixation? Have you heard that story? Um, I have, but they have not. Okay, I'll tell the story and apologies <laughs> to any. So the thing is, the thing about quantum computing is these these stories become so tired they get told over and over again. Which but is this hilarious. Is a good They're one. tired to you, but trust me when I tell you that <laughs> that this yeah. audience is like, I don't know what you're talking Great. about. <laughs> Great. No, so, well, to be fair, some of you already know, and I, my apologies if you do, but. <laughs> Okay, so so depending on how uh, organic of a diet you eat, half of the nitrogen in your body was made in a factory, uh, which is quite a striking thing to think about. Like your body right now, half of that nitrogen was made in a factory, and it was made in an industrial process called the Haber-Bosch process, which we use to make nitrogen fertilizer. And the Haber-Bosch process... Uh, 
was invented in living memory for some people. It's not a particularly old idea. Uh, it's in very intensive, energy intensive. So you burn gas, you burn like a few percent of natural gas worldwide is used for Haberbosch to make fertilizer. Um, and you burn it at incredibly high temperature, incredibly high pressure, and you can, you can make nitrogen-based fertilizer this way. Now, of course, if you think about uh, bacteria in the soil, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, they are also making nitrogen fertilizer, and they're doing it at room temperature, at, room, at, at ambient pressure. You know, they're not burning huge amounts of fuel to do this. How do they do it? Nobody really knows. Like the, 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 the chemical machinery that they're using to do that is quite poorly understood. And so this is just one kind of uh, glimmer of hope, right? That you should be able to design chemical. And by the way, the Haber-Bosch process and like artificial fertilizer, that's a teeny tiny little uh, molecular um, or like teeny tiny piece of chemistry that debatably is responsible for millions of lives, right? Like that, you know, humans manage to sustain growth and sustain our agriculture and scale our agriculture, thanks in part to that. Um, and so, yeah, the, the fact that 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 um, in nature, uh, th these, these things can be done with dramatically lower energy costs, that's a glimmer of hope that humans can find new chemistry, new molecules, um, that would allow us to sustain our quality of life with much, much, much lower impact on uh, the environment. Mm -hmm. And so you can you can interpret that example in in two different ways. One of them is to say, well, that's a specific target. Let's go and design a new fertilizer. And there's a lot of people who take that very seriously. Microsoft has done uh, groundbreaking work on on that idea using a quantum computer to go and reduce the time to uh, search for new new chemistry like this uh, as opposed to trial and error i used to actually do this i used to work you know with my arms in a glove box mixing up uh, chemicals trying to design a new lithium ion battery for some applications but you can think for for car you know for an electric car and it's literally trial and error, right? Like you mix the stuff up, yep. you take it out, you test it, you see what happened, it didn't work. It's an incredibly slow process of development. And so the idea with the quantum computer is that we would just, um, uh, we would computerize that whole process. And this is what we did with aircraft, for instance. So when you want to design an aircraft wing, you used to build it out of balsa wood and, and plaster, put it in a wind tunnel, observe the air, flowing over the wing and now you want to try a different design you take it back to the wood shop you add a little bit of a little bit of wood on the leading edge you take it back to the the wind tunnel now of course you just move a slider in your software and run the simulation again and you can iterate much much quicker so you know you can either think of that as in terms of like directly targeting fertilizer as a single example of many or you can think of it more broadly as like this is a leveling up of humans' ability to sort of master the physical substrate of our world. And that debatably is a necessary tool uh, for us to overcome these grand and arguably insurmount like currently insurmountable challenges that we that we currently face. Let's let's close the loop quickly on on why it is that quantum computing is so 
unique to that task? Oh, great question. Like, I think we probably haven't explained, right, that it's it's the ability to simulate multiple things at the same time. Like, explain why it shortens that process so dramatically. Yeah, so I keep talking about chemistry and materials and small things. The reason that those are great targets for quantum computing is that they are themselves quantum mechanical. Uh, so a molecule, a reaction, you know, you've got single atoms, single electrons inter- interacting with each other. And so if you want to accurately predict what happens in those situations, very often you need to capture the quantum mechanics of the system in question. And that is computationally incredibly difficult for all of our conventional computers. And in most cases, it's impossible for conventional computers to answer these questions. Some progress has been made using AI to solve these problems, but most scientists expect that that progress will be limited. So it will um, sort of encroach on the area where you would want a quantum computer, but will by no means encompass that that uh, domain. So yeah, the reason that, that, that we keep talking about chemistry and molecules is that quantum computers are really, really good, as you can imagine, at uh, simulating quantum mechanical systems. And most people believe that they are really the only computers that could accurately predict the behavior of these things in the long, long term. You know, I, I also think it's important if you if you imagine going talking to people who are building their very first conventional computers, so the only thing I've really got in common with Alan Turing is that I'm British, <laughs> but but like go and talk to Alan Turing and and say, hey, what are you doing with this computer thing? And the, and those guys would all broadly say the same thing. They'd say, well, we're going to do code breaking. There's a war on, right? Like these very first computers we used to, uh, during during World War Two. Um, we're going to do ballistics calculations for the Navy or something. We're going to figure out where the bombs are going to land. And then, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll do some banking or something, like some logistics. And that's it, right? Like that was, there was a very, very short list of things. Uh, and of course, you know, these are universal machines. They're programmable machines and people's creativity was pretty much boundless. So I think there's a very, I understand that in quantum computing, everyone wants to hear these concrete examples. And uh, I wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have a long enough list of concrete examples that if that's all there is, it's still worth doing this. So finding new drugs, finding new materials, uh, finding new catalysts for carbon sequestration, finding new fuels, that's already like like billions and billions and billions of dollars and huge, huge impact if any of those comes off. But I'm also personally really uh, optimistic that uh, we barely scratched the surface and we'll look back on that list and say, man, we were, sh- we were so narrow-minded uh, about what we were going to do with these things. Yep. You so much uh, better articulated exactly what I was about to say. There's the whole universe of problems we don't even know we're going to solve. Pete Chadwell, thank you so much for the time. I really, this is so fascinating. I know we're going to be hearing a lot more from you. Thank you, Molly. Real pleasure. All right. That is it for this episode of Everybody in the Pool. Thank you so much for listening and rolling with the geekery. Pete is both a genius and I think a bit of a poet. And yes, he acknowledges that this may never work. 
But I like to imagine that our human ingenuity knows no bounds, especially when it comes to our own survival. And I would like to hear what you think. Please email me your thoughts and suggestions to in at everybodyinthepool.com and find all the latest episodes and more at everybodyinthepool.com, the website. And if you want to become a subscriber and get an ad-free version of the show, hit the link in the description in your podcast app of choice. Remember, together, we can get this done. See you next week.